The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Being dismissed, you notice that it said to kindergarten just completed. I want to clarify something because we have not had promotion Sunday yet. If you finished kindergarten, you're still in kindergarten. So just to kind of clarify that. But what that also means is that we have first and second graders in here, which is a little bit unusual. Um, we started doing that this summer for these couple of months here. And if you're sitting next to a first grader or a second grader, if you're a parent of one, or if you are a first grader or a second grader, I hope that we all view this as a good thing, as an opportunity to worship together as a whole church family. Historically, the whole concept of dismissing kids to another setting is very new. It's very modern. And it's, there, there's a lot of helpfulness in this to begin make us think about worshiping as a family together with kids just as young as they possibly can be. Of course, I'm talking over their heads. That's how parents can then take things and then teach and, and disciple kids. It's good for kids. It's good for you if you're a first grader or second grader to see the body at worship here. So we're delighted by this chance. Let me pray, and then we'll begin with our passage today. Father, you are Lord of all. The Lord of all of the nations, you're Lord of all of the people in the nations, and you're Lord of all the details of the people's lives in the nations. You're Lord of me, of the individuals here in this room every single aspect of our lives, you reign over and cry out, I am Lord, I am supreme. May that be a good thing for us. May we view that as a blessing because we come to you humble and in faith, trusting and not trying to resist. You mean for your lordship, for your supremacy to be marvelous and good and joy-giving. And I pray that it would be that for us. Work in us this morning, Lord, to conform us a little more to your image, to soften us, to humble us, to bring us to you trusting and hoping and depending. We look at one particular aspect of our lives that you're a lord over. Particularly this morning, we focus on our livelihoods, on sustenance. I pray, Father, convince us that you have this too under your control. We can trust you. We need not and must not take these things into our own hands, but should lay them at your feet in confident hope that you, the Lord over it, will meet our needs and care for us, your people. Speak that truth into our minds and hearts this morning. Build your church and bring glory to your Son. And I pray this in His name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the eighth of the Ten Commandments. Over the last couple of months, our study of the book of Deuteronomy has kept us in chapter 5, where the commandments are one by one enumerated. We've looked at the, the foundational piece of the Ten Commandments and then the first table of the law, which is the first four. They form a unit primarily instructing us how to worship God, how to interact with God on kind of a a vertical plane. 
And then we move to the second table of the law, which is Numbers 5 through 10, which primarily address the horizontal, how we are to interact with other people in the community. And number eight, obviously, is in the second table of the law. It's going to be instructing us about how to deal here on this plane in a way that pleases God. We've learned a lot about the Ten Commandments so far, but there's one thing that I've said several times that bears repeating every Sunday. We need to be sure that we approach the Ten Commandments with the proper mindset, that we don't approach them as some would like us to, as some teach. We must not approach the Ten Commandments as if, here's the things you do so that God will accept you and you can become one of His people. That's false. In fact, it's the exact opposite way. Because you have already become one of his people, here's how you live in his kingdom, in his world. Historically, it's a fact, if you look, read through the Old Testament, and the New Testament makes this point in a number of different ways as well, that God first acted to make the people of Israel his own. He called them out of Egypt and made them his own people, and then, having called them out, he gave them the law. So the law follows the making of him to be there, the making of them to be his people. Same thing for us today. We, as Christians, become Christians and then come to the law and say, this is what God wants of his people in his kingdom. So we've got to get that order right. And if you misunderstand that, you misunderstand a ton. So you need to clarify that yet again this morning. But with that, let me turn to the text. We're going to look at the Eighth Commandment today, but I'm going to begin, as I have before, back in the very beginning to read the, the foundation, to read the whole law, because it's important to give us the context. So I'm going to begin reading in Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting with verse 6, reading up through verse 19. Verse 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them to serve, or to serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder... And you shall not commit adultery for today, and you shall not steal. The word of the Lord. 
And once again, the text is very short, just a couple of words. And a lot of what it means is kind of immediately obvious to us. But there is one thing that we need to kind of drill into a little bit that will help set the context for what would have been primarily heard when this commandment was first spoken. And understanding the context a little bit will help us to kind of see some different angles and I think help us to get at the, at the heart issues that are connected to this commandment. Our modern, particularly Western culture, is probably a little more inclined to read this in a certain way. So I, I kind of got to ask you to put yourself back a little bit into a, a previous culture and a previous generation. If you're an ancient Israelite coming out of Egypt in the Sinai Desert when you hear this, you hear, don't steal. And obviously it's not qualified, so it means don't steal anything. Don't steal, period. Anything that's not yours, don't take it. But in your culture, most of the things you own are all of a certain type. There is some gold and some silver in the culture of the time. The Egyptians, we know, gave them gold and silver when they, they fled Egypt after the, the ten plagues. The Egyptians kind of chased them out and sent them away. You know, here's, here's some money, go. So they had some gold and some silver, but the vast majority of the possessions that they had, and certainly possessions that they had that were worth anything, were all connected to their livelihood. The vast majority of their things would be related to how they made a living, how they provided for their sustenance. We today, we have whole realms of endeavor that would have been largely foreign to Israelites back then. I'm thinking particularly of realms like entertainment and leisure, things like amusement. Not to say that the Israelites never had any fun or never entertained guests, but we in, in our opulence have taken that to a whole new level. We have whole categories of life built around these concepts, such that we have camping gear and golf equipment and motorcycles and snowmobiles and bicycles and iPods and stereos and video games and televisions and stamp collections and cameras and toys and jewelry, etc., 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 etc. Loads of that kind of stuff in our homes, in our garages, in our vacation homes, in our timeshare condominiums, all kinds of stuff that could potentially be stolen. Because it has a value, because there's a market for all those things. But, importantly, if any of that stuff is stolen, it has zero impact on your ability to make a living. That's, that's the big difference. We often miss this. For most of us here, in particular this is accentuated in our suburban setting, and not all of us are in this category, I realize, but most of us, the things, that the tools that we need to make a living are really hard to steal. Take, for instance, myself. For me to make a living, I need a functioning body and a few clothes. I need, I need a body so I can think and read and talk and some clothes so I can stand in front of you. <laughs> but that's about it. And most of us here are in the very same situation, whether you work in an office or in retail or in a factory. What you need to work is your functioning body and clothing. Put yourself in a different setting, though. Back in that original setting, like an agrarian society, or perhaps some of us here who own, who own businesses and own the implements of our actual labor, like you know, a, a tractor or a plow or something like that. Ba back in a farm setting, the stuff that you own is all tied to your living. If you steal my iPod, eh, big deal. 
I'm irritated, but I'm still going to make a living. But if you steal a farmer's ox, how's he going to pull his plow or pull his wagon? If you steal his plow, how's he going to break the ground? If you steal his seed, how's he going to sow in a crop? If you steal his axe, how's he going to cut wood for the fire? Or his hammer or his tools, his harness. You steal any of those things and you threaten his ability to make a living. You threaten his family's life. That's what would have first come to mind when they read, you shall not steal. The only stuff anybody would steal is stuff I need to live. So that's, that's a context that's important for us to understand. Now, obviously, it's not restricted. It doesn't say, you shall not steal only really important stuff. It means, don't steal anything. But in particular, the, the context of this, the societal context here, introduces, almost automatically introduces, the concept of living, of livelihood, of sustenance. We need to keep that in mind as we move in and make a couple of observations this is going to constantly be surfacing and it will never be very far away from our discussion this morning. So I'm not going to turn. With that, I'm going to turn and make a couple of overarching observations. One that addresses the commandment specifically as it's given to us and the one that gets at its implied opposite. So here's my first observation dealing with the command itself. Let me put it like this. We must not take what belongs to others in an attempt to meet our own needs. That last part there, you hear the context of the the livelihood, the sustenance. We must not take from others in an attempt to meet our own needs. God prohibits that. Right on the surface, that's the pretty basic meaning of of the statement. And there's a pretty obvious immediate reason why, why he would prohibit that. Remember the cultural context. Theft equals an attack on the ability to sustain life. It attacks livelihood. If I take the implements of work, that's a threat. That's an immediate threat. But even actually, if you work it around to all the other stuff, the, the iPods and the snowmobiles and the bicycles of the world, even the threat of those things eventually threatens livelihood because... Theft in general, unchecked, creates a culture of, if I want it, I will take it. And that inevitably leads to societal breakdown and exploitation and abuse and threat to life and livelihood and poverty. As a a simple illustration, just think of crime-ridden neighborhoods and countries that are plagued with corruption. They are inevitably poor. Because businesses avoid those places. People avoid those places if they can. They don't go invest there. They don't go spend money there. They don't go hang out there. Inevitably, crime, of which theft is a big part, leads to a threat against livelihood. And God, because God loves people, and God loves societies in which people can exist and thrive and prosper, God forbids that which, was, that which is a threat against society. You shall not steal. But beyond the societal reasons for prohibiting theft, there's some theological ones. We, we need to become a people and an individual people. We need to become people who, who automatically think that life is primarily not about me 
and a bunch of life experiences that I have with you. That life is primarily, first, last, fundamentally all the way through, life is about me before God. And then you. Life is about you before God and with all of us. We need to become a people who automatically think like that. Somehow this relates to God. Somehow this is about God. And so if I hear a commandment, you shall not steal, and I hear a societal explanation of it, I think, okay, that's great, but fundamentally this is about God. Where's God in this? That kind of automatic thinking has to become a part of your DNA. Where's God in this? This this has to be theological. Because that's what life is about. And it is. But how? Well, there are a couple of theological reasons why God prohibits theft. One of them I'm going to leave for the Tenth Commandment, coveting. And one we're going to address this morning. Let me approach it like this. Throughout history, it has been very common for children to have to work to supplement the income of their families. Throughout history and across the globe, even today, it is not uncommon that children have to work to kind of add income. I was reading in the paper even recently about immigrants in Utah today from Spanish-speaking countries, not all Mexico, but Spanish-speaking countries where children are having to work to supplement the income of their families. That's not uncommon. I would imagine, though, that those parents have always felt a little bit bad about that, especially those dads, a little bit bad about that, having to send your teenage daughter off to work to supplement your income. But in some places, that's a necessity. But let's change it a little bit. Remove the necessity part. Put yourself in a family where you're the father, you're the mother, you have a sufficient income, paying for the the house mortgage or the apartment rent and the food on the table and things are going along just fine and one day your teenage son or daughter comes out to you and says, Dad, Mom, I want to get a job. Why? Well, because I I want to get a little bit of income so I can start buying some food. Why? Well, because I might need some food. Do you mean like like treats and snacks and that kind of stuff? No, I mean like milk and bread and vegetables. Son, daughter, I buy the food. Have not always bought the food? Well, I know you bought the food yesterday. And I think you bought the food for tonight. But I'm just not sure about tomorrow. I'm I'm not totally... I think perhaps... But I'm not totally convinced that you're going to buy the food for tomorrow or next week or next month. So what I'm going to do, Dad, is I'm going to buy a freezer and I'm going to put it in my bedroom. And I'm going to go out and buy some food and I'm going to put it in there and freeze it for the day when you decide to cut me off from the refrigerator. Or for the day when you just decide, you know, today I'm just not going to provide for you. For when that day comes, I want to be sure that I've got it covered. Are you serious? Once you get over the, the, the comical exchange and you establish that, yes, Junior is serious about this, I think you would be at least a little hurt and probably insulted. Do you mean you actually really think that though for 16 years I've been feeding you, there might actually come a point when I'm going to say, you know, 
Nope. You're not an adult yet. You're not out on your own. You're still in my house, but you know, not today. I think this week you're not going to eat. You really think that? Assuming that he does actually think that, you have a problem there. What is it? It's a problem of trust and of his what he believes about your character. It's an issue of whether or not, he, not a capacity question, it's a willingness question. I know you have a job and you could, you just might decide not to feed me. And in that case, I want to be able to take care of myself. That's a problem. That's the issue behind theft. This is where the Ten Commandments begin. Verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who delivered you. And then as he says in Deuteronomy 1 and 2, I fought for you. I carried you through the desert like a father carries his son. Deuteronomy 2, he brings them up to the land of Esau and says, don't take any of Esau's stuff. Why? Because of a societal reason? It would be a problem for Esau and you? No. Because I'm not giving that to you. I have something else to give you. Believe me, because have I not, he says in Deuteronomy 2, have I not blessed all of the work of your hands in the desert for the last 40 years? Have I not met all of your needs up to this very point? So trust me, don't take his stuff. I will provide for you in the immediate future. Believe me. Same issue there. There's a back record of faithful provision. And there's an opportunity at this moment to say, I'm going to reach out my hand and get it for myself. And God says, don't trust me in my promise to provide for you tomorrow. And theft says, mm, no. I hear the promise. I see the back log of the, the back record here. I don't believe you. I don't trust you. Yeah, I've seen all this before. I hear your promise today. I think I had best take the means into my own hand for when the day comes that you cut me off and say, I will not feed you today. I'm going to have to reach out my hand and get something for myself. That's the issue behind theft. It is unbelief. Theft is a theological issue. It is a repudiation of God's wisdom in allotting the times and seasons, the lot in life that you face right here today. It's a rejection of His providential power to provide for you. And fundamentally, it is a denial of His loving care for you as His child. Theft is theological. It is something that you say about God. Doubt and unbelief. It's law-breaking. The stealing of anything is law-breaking. But particularly the stealing of things that are used, the tools, the implements of making a living, of a, of a livelihood, of providing for yourself. Taking those things. In our, in our day, it's not animals and, and farm implements. For most of us, it's probably just money. 
gets right down to it. We're talking about cash. Theft of money from perhaps from your employer out of right out of the register or right out of your expense account, right out of the warehouse. Or from the government and not reporting all of your income. Or not paying the taxes on the income that was reported. Or perhaps from another individual person that you interact with, maybe a client that you have or a contractor that you hire and then stiff. In some way, theft reaches into many different areas, particularly of the economy, but many different areas of the life. There's no way I could touch on every single one of them, so I'm not even going to try. You shall not steal. May God bring conviction to you today if that applies to you directly. But to be honest, I can't remember the last time I stole any money from anybody. And as I'm dealing with this passage for this week and and trying to think about this commandment, the difficulty that I keep bumping into is I don't steal anything from my employer. I don't steal anything from the government. I don't steal anything from other people. As far as I'm aware, as I can look back into recent memory, and I haven't done those things. And I suspect that many, maybe even most of us, are in the very same place. And so we can come to the Eighth Commandment here, and we can kind of look at it and say, you know, okay, that's a good reminder, I guess, and it's a good thing to instruct the kids on. I'm glad the first graders are in here so they know this. But it doesn't directly apply to me. I'm beyond that. Well, as I think about it and kind of drill into it, I think it does apply to more of us than we probably think. And so as to kind of expand the circle and bring more of us into this, let me turn your eyes back to where I just was a minute ago with why theft is theologically evil and remind you that God is primarily, first and foremost, concerned about our hearts from which our behavior comes. God's dealing with the heart, and the heart attitude that's behind theft is a doubt of God's provision and a belief that if my life is to be sustained, it's up to me, and so I better get about acquiring the means. Sometimes, there's a continuum here, sometimes all the way out here in this end of the continuum, that means that I actually take something from somebody else. I don't live out there. Probably most of us don't. But it's the same continuum with the same heart attitude, and that's what God's primarily concerned about. The heart that leads to the behavior. He's concerned about the behavior too, of course, but the heart that's behind it. And I look at the heart attitude of not believing, of not trusting God's provision for me, and I see that that is in me often. Looks like, not robbery, But worry, masquerading as prudent planning. And overwork, masked as diligence. And hoarding, disguised as wise saving. The tricky thing is, those, those things of saving and working hard, that's good. You could even find commandments about working diligently in the Bible. Those things on the surface, they might look all good and fine. 
But what's driving them beneath? Is it this heart attitude of, I don't believe, yes, God provided for me last year, last decade, and today, I think, but I'm not sure if there's going to come a time where He's going to cut me off and say, not today. And so I better prepare for that by acquiring the means myself. And I'm going to work really hard. And I'm going to plan out every possible facet of this life and of this job. And then when I get things, I'm going to keep them and sit on them for the rainy day. Is that what's driving these otherwise wise and good behaviors? It's difficult. Examine yourself. When I examine myself and I start to look at the Eighth Commandment in that light, I see that I have a problem with it. Don't steal. Okay. Good. But the heart attitude behind that convicts me. Maybe you see that in yourself too. Look at worry. Look at overwork. Look at your savings plans and see what's driving that. Perhaps you'll see that you have a problem with the Eighth Commandment when we turn to the next observation and see the New Testament's expansion on the Eighth Commandment. But before we go there, I want to say something else about the issue of unbelief and not trusting Him. I want to speak about it positively. Do you realize that He is trustworthy? I mean, not in your official theology that if, if I were to hand you a questionnaire and say, is God trustworthy, yes or no, you'd answer yes. Can he be trusted to provide for your physical needs? You'd answer yes. Of course, we all would. But I mean, do you really believe it? Do you really believe that God is worthy of being trusted? And how do you know? He has offered to us one extremely significant final statement about His trustworthiness. You probably know what I'm talking about. The cross has many different uses in the Christian life. Fundamentally, the cross is where Jesus goes to die to pay the sin penalty due to us for our law-breaking. Fundamentally, that's what the cross is about. The wrath of God that should be poured out on us as lawbreakers being poured out instead on Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness, who always trusted His Father's provision, Jesus' righteousness being given over to us. Fundamentally, that's what the cross is about. And if you trust Him, you will be forgiven. But there are many other uses for the cross. And one of them is as a character witness to God. He is for you. Look at the cross. He would not step into the world, act to save you, and then abandon you. If He was about abandoning you, He would have just left you alone to start with. He need not come in to save you if He wants to abandon you and let you perish. Will He not also, along with His Son, give you all things? That's Paul's argument in Romans 8. The obvious answer is, of course. 
along with the cross, along with Christ's death, He will give me all things. He's trustworthy. There is not going to come a time when He will cut you off and say, I don't feel like it today. No. You're on your own. That day never comes. It never comes. You can look back in your life and see, I hope, you can read biographies of other Christians and see God's consistent, oftentimes miraculous, but sometimes very ordinary provision. But if you never look at any of those things, you can look at the cross and say, there God has provided for my greatest need, and along with that, He'll give me everything else too. When you're tempted, and these are economic times that for some of us may be very tempting, to wonder, is God there? Does does God care? Is He going to provide? Can He? Is He aware? Will He? When you're tempted in these times, look to the cross and see His nature displayed, see His character displayed for you, and realize what can separate you from the love of Christ Nothing. Not famine, not hardship, not sword. Nothing. His love is steadfast and everlasting for you, and He will provide. Let me turn to the second observation. first one talks about what the commandment means in its explicit statement, and the second observation is what the implied opposite is. All the commandments state one thing and likewise imply the opposite. And so, here's our second observation. We must love others by giving to them to meet their needs. We must love others by giving to them to meet their needs. When we read something like don't steal, we should be thinking what the opposite requirement would be. And in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul makes it explicit for us, helps us out there. So you might want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. It's about 100 pages from the end of your Bible, the New Testament. And I've preached through all this before, so if you want more depth here, feel free to go online and listen to it. But I'm going to briefly give some of the context here. In Ephesians 4, first we're going to look at verses 22, 23, and 24. And in those verses, Paul is laying out... God's plan, the unit of of thought here, 22, 3, and 4 all belong together, but how it is that God grows Christians, how it is that He matures Christians. And you need all three of these things together. 22, He says that Christians were taught to put off your old self. To put it off. Think of like clothing. So think of a of a, a change of clothing that's become all dirty and is permeated with sin. And you were taught to take off that clothing and, and reject it and put it away. Continually say, no, I'm not wearing that. To turn away from that. That's the first step of this process. And you can't stop there, although many people want to. A lot of people in the world, a lot of ethical and moral people, a lot of religious people... That's about as far as their thinking and their teaching goes. They just say, okay, I realize that this particular habit or this particular behavior or thinking process or whatever is wrong. It's, 
it's immoral, it's sinful, maybe they might use that word. And so I'm going to not do that. I'm going to not steal. That's wrong. So they want to put that off. The problem is that you can't stop there. That itself is not necessarily a work of God. You can, you can do that, particularly if you have a lot of really strong willpower, or if you have a society around you that creates lots of supporting pressure, maybe that passes laws against certain things, or there's tremendous peer pressure to do this or that or not do this or that. So you can have some success in putting some things off. But that's not the whole process. Continues on in verse 23. Taught to put off that, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. This is the work that God does, to be renewed. It means you don't do it, somebody else does it, that's God, renews you. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds. There's a change. You notice the end of 22 talks about those corrupting evil desires. There are desires in us that are deceitful, that lead our minds astray. And what happens is that God moves in and changes how we think and how we look at things and what we love, what we desire. And as He changes that in 23, then 24, we put on the new, created by God to be like Him in righteousness and holiness. That's the whole process by how a Christian grows. Putting off, being changed on the inside, and putting on. Then to be specific about how this applies to the Eighth Commandment, skip down to verse 28. Paul writes, Let the thief no longer steal. That's put off. Sounds a lot like the Eighth Commandment. Don't steal. But rather, here's what you put on, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He's given up taking from other people to meet his needs, first observation. And there's been a change in him that he says, I want to work with my own hands so that I'll have something to give to these folks in their need. That's what he puts on. And in the so that, you hear verse 23 is being changed in the attitude of your mind. He has a change in mind, not just a change in behavior, but I don't steal, but now I give. There's been a change in mind from what about me to what about you? You have a need. I want to have something in my pocket that I can give to you. So I want to work with my own hands so that I can bless you. That's the change in attitude. We must love others by giving to them to meet their needs. That's the point where, again, the Eighth Commandment becomes challenging to me. Because well, I said I haven't committed a straightforward act of theft in recent memory. When I see that what it means to keep the Eighth Commandment is to have a change of attitude away from what about me to what about you? How can I earn something so as to be able to bless you? That's the fullness of obeying the Eighth Commandment? I fall short of that. If you come to a congregational meeting and you can read, you know how much I'm paid. So probably many people in this room know, know what my salary is. And you know, I'm not poor, I'm not rich, I'm comfortable. I have money to give. 
But I constantly sense, as soon as the opportunity to give $100 of this or $1,000 of that or $50 of this, as soon as the opportunity comes up, I sense in my heart right away the cinching up of the purse strings. Because my thinking is still on me. And I can look at my life, and man, you know, my basement's been a money pit for years. And my backyard's about to become a money pit. And after that, my roof will be. And I've got kids who are going to be going to college one day. And, and, and. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be wise to kind of to save the money that I have? To, to hold on to it for all of those needs? And maybe it would. That's the trick. Is that saving something for those needs would be wise. But the problem is that where I'm beginning is, what about me? If I do that, what about me? Rather than, if I don't do that, what about you? That's the change that has to happen. And it hasn't fully happened in me yet. As you look at your life, maybe it hasn't fully happened in you yet either. And if so, then you're not keeping the Eighth Commandment. There's a change that needs to happen. But be careful. The heart change that needs to happen is not, as it might seem from what I was just saying, is not first and foremost that I develop a view for and a compassion for you. That's not first. We need to become a people who realize that first life is about me and God and then you. It's first me before God. The change that needs to happen in my mind is about how I am interacting with and am I believing in God's character to provide for me tomorrow or not. That's the change about me and God. This is something that Hudson Taylor knew well. Learned again and again. Hudson Taylor was one of the first and one of the most remarkable missionaries to the country of China. Year 1854, he landed in China as a 21- or 22-year-old young man, single. And he pioneered much missions work in in China and affected how churches do missions all around the world. But he tells of a time when he was preparing to go to China, living in London, And he constantly lived on on very little, very near the poverty line. And he found himself at one point down to his last coin, a single coin. And without attempting to translate what the coins were in England in the mid-19th century to what they would be equivalent today, let me just say it was a $10 bill. It, It wasn't. It wasn't the equivalent. But a little bit of money that you could live on for a couple days, but not a lot. He's down to his last $10 bill, had no other money to his name at all, and had some water gruel on the stove at home for dinner that night and enough left over for breakfast tomorrow, and then he was done. Nothing else in the house. Two bowls of water gruel and a $10 bill. And he finds himself on his usual Sunday ministry rounds going through the tenements of London, and a man asks him, come, desperate, asks him, come pray for my dying wife. And he leads him down the alleyways and into this hole of an apartment where there are four kids standing there with sunken temples and sunken cheeks, starving. And a brand new baby just born to that mother lying there in squalor on a pallet 
starving. He said the baby wasn't crying, the baby was moaning. And he's got a $10 bill in his pocket. And the man didn't ask him for money, the man asked him to come and pray. Knew him to be a minister of some sort. And so he begins to talk to them about a, a God who can be trusted. And he begins to pray. And all the while, he's having a tremendous battle of conscience on the inside. Oh, I wish I had two fives. I'd give them one. Or I had ten ones, I'd give them eight. Or I'd give them nine. But I have water gruel for tonight and for tomorrow, and then I'm done. He had a significant amount of money owed to him, theoretically coming at some point, but when? His food's going to run out tomorrow morning. When is God going to bring the money that's owed to him? I should keep at least five or at least two, maybe one, shouldn't I? But I can't. It's all in one denomination. So it's an all or nothing affair. And he says his words, as I'm praying, I find my conscience saying, you hypocrite. Speaking to them about a God and Father in heaven who can be trusted with a $10 bill in your pocket that you won't part with. And if he says, I found myself unable to trust God without sixpence. Some portion of the coin. Note, he did not say, I found myself without compassion or without love. Because that's not the first issue. The first issue is, do I trust God or not? That's the dam that needs to be removed so that the blessing can flow. If I trust God to meet all of my needs, if that gets removed, then I can give cheerfully, believing that if the water gruel runs out, He'll provide. That's what He wrestled with. Graciously, God intervened. And He gave. And His joy said His joy just overran him there in that apartment. And the next morning before he'd finished breakfast, miraculously money arrived in his apartment, enough to live on for a couple days, and then the large sum of money came miraculously again at the end of the week. Great that it all worked out nicely, isn't it? It doesn't always work out that miraculously and that cleanly. Sometimes, God provides much differently than we think, or much less than we think. But he will not abandon you. The issue, the change that needs to happen is a reorientation on the issue of belief or unbelief. Do I believe that God will care for me? That God will carry me? That God is a sure rock? That he's the place I can anchor onto and hold onto and find shelter with for all my needs in life? That's what Paul means in Ephesians 4. When he talks about the renewing of your mind, the changing of the spirit of your mind in verse 23. We know that because that's what he does in the first three chapters of the book. He attempts to argue with the Ephesian church again and again and again. Essentially, look at the cross. 
Look at the gospel. Look at what all that God has done for you in Christ to rescue you from your sin and to make you a people and to give you an inheritance. Chapter 1, he talks about the glorious inheritance that's been given to the saints. You have everything that you need. Chiefly Christ. And if He's given you Christ, will He not also with Him, with him give you all things? Yes. And then He prays that they would see that hope. And secondly, He prays that they would understand just how God views His own people as His own inheritance. He uses the word inheritance in a different way. We have an inheritance, and God has an inheritance. Us. His treasured possession. He loves His people. Will he abandon them? No. He loves his people. Shouldn't we? Yes. Seeing that, having that kind of a, of a mind change to see how Jesus views his people. Paul prays for their eyes to be opened because it must come by, a spiritual work must happen that you must see it. When you do, trust grows. And the dam of unbelief gets removed and the blessing can flow. To the body whom he loves. Ephesians 5 said he loves the church and gave himself for her. And also to those who are not Christians. As Jesus himself implies in places like Matthew 5 and in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who's my neighbor? Everybody. Everybody. Who does God love? The just and the unjust, Matthew 5. He sends rain and sun on the just and the unjust. Now, it's not love in the very same way. It doesn't mean that the unjust are saved. The unjust are unjust. There's a difference there. But his point is, the end of that story, Matthew 5, if you want to be like your Father who is perfect, you must love not just your friends, but also your enemies. Everybody. If I believe that He will cover my needs, the dam is removed for me to give to everybody. That's a change that needs to happen in us if we are going to fully obey the Eighth Commandment and not take from, but give to others to meet their needs. And I think obviously this matters as we're attempting to talk about community in our church. Community... Think of Acts 2 and Acts 4. Community where they gave, where they sold their houses even to meet the needs of people. You've got to have a high view of God, not first and foremost a high compassion level. A high view of God that will then lead to a high compassion level. It starts with God. And they had that. They saw that. They, they were enthralled with Him. And then they gave Everything, if need be, to meet the needs of people. There are obvious connections. Why we need to have this change happen. If we're going to see a community develop here that's God-honoring, that's filled with sacrifice and love and giving to others in the church and outside of the church. Believers and unbelievers alike. In the Eighth Commandment, he says simply don't steal. 
The opposite of that, Paul elaborates on. Not just don't steal, but give. And in the middle of that, we need a heart change that orients me, that reorients me from concern about myself based on distrust to concern for others that's rooted in trust. May God work that change in us. May He show Himself trustworthy to you. May He open your eyes and show you the vast inheritance that He has and the vast inheritance that you are to Him. May He grow that in us. Let me pray. Father, would You open our eyes Point us to the cross and convince us of your trustworthiness. Of your strong desire to provide for your people, to love them and always care for them. And of your strong desire for us to love and care for others. Give grace to us that we would believe you. Give grace to us that we would act. Change me, change my brothers and sisters here. But we want to live lives that please you. But we need your help. And so I pray, act, change us, grow us. In Christ's name and for his glory in his church. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.